Hey again, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Inside BS interview series. Today, we're taking you behind the scenes of Florida's most successful trial law firm with the man who started it all along with his brother, Mitch, and his partner, David San Pedro. Our guest today is Brett Panter. And Brett, if you don't know him, obviously, you've never been to Florida. Brett is a Florida Bar board-certified civil trial lawyer, and he primarily practices in the area of Complex civil, civil, complex civil litigation, which is really a personal injury, wrongful death, medical malpractice, nursing home neglect, product liability, premises liability, and very important aviation litigation. So my my relationship with Brett goes back 15 years. He's been a wonderful friend to me. But I have to tell you, even if I didn't know him, if I or a member of my family had a traumatic injury, especially an injury that was related to neglect or malpractice on the part of a hospital, a nursing home, or a medical facility, Brett is the only person I would call because he's the best there is at it in the state of Florida. Join me in welcoming to the Inside BS show, my friend, Brett Panter. David, thank you for such a warm welcome. Number one, I want to thank you for allowing me the privilege of being on your show. And yes, I've known David for over 15 years, and he's been instrumental as a friend and a colleague. Uh, we've had so many interconnected aspects of our practices, and I'm really proud to call him my friend, and thank you for the honor of being on your show today. Well, I'm I'm excited that you're here because you're going to you're gonna you're gonna be actually teaching today. You're gonna share with us how to build a successful law firm. But before we do that, I want to I want people to get a con a sense of context for the type of work that you do. So share with us a, a case that you're that you're passionate about. It can be a current case, past case, whatever. Share with us a, a case that you're passionate about to give the audience a flavor for the type of work that you do. Well, thank you, David, for that intro. Um, you know, I've been doing this 34 years, and I am the founder of Panther Panther and San Pedro. And I have a passion for all of our clients, but in particular, my practice has focused, as you've noted, on catastrophic type cases. And but what do I mean by that? Those are cases that affect a family, a life, lives in a, in a significant and major way. And those type of people, those type of families need help and resources. And we as lawyers have to have the skill set and the resources together and the team to be able to help them. So what do I mean? The last case we worked on, uh, to give you an example, I myself spent about a year and a half. And at that point in time, I had a man who was a 62-year-old man, 63 years old, who became what's called a quadriplegic. That means, David, that that man could not move from the neck down. It was an amazing survival story. And there were two components of the case. One was whether or not whether or not he was entitled to workers compensation and one was a what's called a third party case so between the two of them that took me a year and a half and at that time i was so engrossed in that case that i told my wonderful partners i said you guys handle my other cases because i'm going to focus on this case so not only did the focus require everything that i had both mentally and financially because we ended up spending 
about $500,000 in out-of-pocket expenses. What does that mean? Experts, depositions, travel, um, the best of the best. And he was an amazing client with an amazing survival skill. Now, the third party part of the case was subject to confidentiality. So I can't really discuss a lot of that. Uh, but the workers' comp part, which was a complete victory, uh, I can discuss because there was no confidentiality to it. A client like that, believe it or not, requires million dollars a year just for his medical expenses to maintain and attain the best quality of life. Now, one may say, what quality of life is there? You know, and when I first met this man, I, I was just amazed at his instinct to survive. And what we had to do was provide him the ability to survive. And without the necessary medical care, a million dollars worth. And how do you get to a million dollars worth? Well, twenty-four. how about 24-hour nursing skilled care? I'm not talking about a certified nursing assistant. I'm talking about an RN with a BS degree. That man needed somebody 24 hours. We had to fight over that. The equipment, the medical visits to doctors. He was at the most prestigious institutions for that type of care. He was originally trached, so that they had to work to get him to get the trach out, which is a big deal. It sounds like nothing, but his respirations, he couldn't barely breathe without mechanical ventilation. So initially he went from mechanical ventilation to a trach, and then eventually a trach was removed. That was millions of dollars. Um, but we had to fight over compensability and liability. And compensability is in the comp case, and liability is in the other, in the third party case for the fault. I wish I could talk about the third party case, but I can't. Um, but the end result was an excellent result, and it, it settled two or three years ago, and our client lives in the best possible manner that he can with the best possible help because our team was focused on that. I don't focus on 100 cases like some law firms do. I, I pick and choose and I make a difference in people's lives and that gets me going in the morning. You know, as you know, David, being a personal friend, yes, you mentioned earlier aviation. I have tons of other hobbies, um, you know, things that I like to do. But this, uh, 36 years later, still turns me on with the right type of case. And right now, I'm, I'm investigating a case. It may turn into something where I can help somebody or I may not. Uh, a little boy has lost his, his entire intestines. They necro ne necrotizing pro problem. And he's going to need a transplant. Now, I'm investigating he had a congenital issue. Now, some people think when you have a congenital issue, it's something you're born with. It's, it's too bad. It's not negligence. That part's not negligence. The question in that case is, did they get to him quickly enough and did they diagnose the problem quickly enough? Because if that's the case, this congenital defect can be treated successfully. But because there was a delay, he's losing it all. He's losing everything. And he's on you know, feeding, he's on 24-hour care, but, but it may or may not be a case because we don't know if the signs and symptoms were there. How do we figure that out? How do we figure that out? Well, my process in medical malpractice cases, now the first case we talked about was not medical malpractice. This one is. The question is, you know, were the signs and symptoms there? How do we figure that out? We have a full-time nurse who's been with me for 30 years. She digs in the medical records. Her and I have conferences one after another 
Then we decide, does it go to the next threshold? What's that? In medical malpractice, it's not like an automobile case where you can just file a lawsuit. You have to go through a pre-suit process. And one of the things that's required is an affidavit from a similar healthcare provider. So now that case is at a neonatology doctor, a doctor who basically deals with babies. And he's going to be looking at those records for the first two or three days and determining, was there enough signs and symptoms for the hospital to have recognized a problem earlier and would it have made a difference? And if he says yes, we go forward. If he says no, this is a doctor that I've dealt with for years that I trust and unfortunately I would have to tell the family that I cannot help them. And what happens then, the family is most likely subject to getting whatever benefits they can from Medicaid. And who pays for Medicaid? You and I. You and I. That's why these cases are so important because they shift the fault where it belongs and shift the financial burden to where it belongs. Now, I'm not saying in this case the financial burden belongs to the hospital, but it may. I don't know that yet. I'll know that very soon. So that is what makes my juices flow in the morning. That and going flying and fishing. Um, but seriously, um, you know, that's kind of what we do here, what I do here. Um, it's been 36 years and every case is a challenge. Every case requires, you know, huge expenses and resources. Now, there are the everyday cases that our firm handles that are, you know, an automobile accident case and a slip and fall case. You know, we cover all aspects of negligence at Panther Panther and San Pedro. Um, but I myself, after 36 years, rise to the challenge of particular and specific and limited cases. And I enjoy that now. And that's kind of where my career has taken me after after that amount of years. Now, you mentioned something and I want to highlight it for for the people who are listening, because we have we have a lot of lawyers who listen to the show, watch on YouTube. But we also have entrepreneurs. We have other business folks. There's there's three reasons why. And this is my opinion. I'm curious to get your take on it, but I'm going to share my opinion with the audience and they can love it or hate it. It's my show. Um, first, I think your what you do is so necessary. There are three main reasons. First, long term care for a victim like you mentioned in uh, in this particular case. Right. And I know the spectrum of cases you handle infants all the way up to grandparents. The, the care for them runs, as you said, millions of dollars. So that's the first reason why your practice is essential. The second reason is future issues, right? If, if this were to happen again, we need to make sure that people understand that somebody has to be uh, somebody has to be held accountable and we, we want to make sure that everyone knows, that look, people, doctors, hospitals, they're comprised they're of human beings and human beings make mistakes. But sometimes the mistakes are due to negligence when people are doing things they shouldn't be doing. So we want to make sure that we give people a moment of pause to think to themselves, this is my seventh procedure of the day. I'm really tired. Maybe I should postpone rather than, uh, you know, perform this procedure. The third reason I think candidly is just flat out accountability and justice, meaning at some point, especially in the cases that the most difficult cases you have where someone ends up passing away due to the, due to the negligence of someone else, there's a hole in these people's lives that in no way can be filled, but 
by having their quote unquote day in court, and you know, most of your cases settle, but some of them go to trial, people feel at least some small sense of closure as a result of what you do for them. I work with a lot of people who are, I'm gonna call them misguided when it comes to the perception of trial lawyers, and they think that trial lawyers make things cost more. You just demonstrated how your being involved in this whole ecosystem helps reduce the cost because people would be thrown onto Medicaid and it would, it would really harm people in the long run. So what I want people to take away, and then I'm interested after I get off my soapbox and hearing your opinion on this, I want people to think to themselves, if there weren't people like you out there, skilled attorneys out there who advocate for folks who are victims, what would stop people from doing 25 procedures in a day when they're completely exhausted? What would stop people from not testing the folks who are going into the OR to make sure they're detail-oriented? There has to be a mechanism to hold everyone accountable in life. Brett, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the lawyers are stoppers. For instance, we just purchased a 1968 Mustang. And I don't know if anyone in your audience can remember those cars, a lap belt. Remember lap belts? Yep. People would submerge under them and be all kinds of injuries and all kinds of painful. problems. <laughs> Lap belts, even if you stop short, it's just painful. <laughs> right. And now we have three-point restraints. Uh, my opinion is that lawyers have a big part in that, in, in bringing a lawsuit and saying, this does not meet the applicable safety standards. I don't care if it's medicine, vehicles, products, doesn't matter. We make a difference and we don't cost society more money. It's the opposite. And you have to understand the system because in the cases that I've just described, those two patients without our firm representing them would be on Medicaid. And who pays Medicaid? All of us. Now, in those two cases, at least in the first case, it's already been accomplished. The second case, we don't know the outcome yet. But in the first case, who's paying? The people that should pay. It was a course and scope of employment, accident, incident. So that employer is paying that. Then the third party, which I can't talk about, mm -hmm. there was a negligent party that caused this man's injury. They are paying. Who is they? It's an entity that bought insurance because they needed to protect things that could happen. That's why we buy insurance. So the insurance company is paying in that instance. That's who should pay. Otherwise, government pays. The government already has enough obligations. We, we take the obligations off the government and off the backs of society. So we do a, it, it's extraordinary. And it's, it's uh, it, some people call it a shifting of responsibility, but it's shifting, but it's putting it where it belongs. And that's what we do as lawyers. If no matter what the instance, doesn't matter if it's a medical malpractice, a product liability, we also make products safer. I had a case involving a lift once, and the lift was poorly designed at the connection point. You understand these giant cement mixing lifts that go way up and they pour cement. There's, there's a connection to the truck, and the connection, without going into great details, was poorly manufactured. And it, engineers that we retained looked at it and not only said it was poorly manufactured, but provided a safe alternative. Now, I can tell you that after that case, the safe alternative was instituted, and I've seen it 
in trucks driving along the road. So I know that we made a difference in terms of not only shifting or putting the fault where it belonged in that one case, but making things safer for the society as we go forward. So without us doing that, without lawyers doing that, it wouldn't happen. And you know, the, the manufacturers wouldn't feel that pressure. And it's good, that pressure is good. That pressure is a good thing. It makes vehicles safer. It makes products safer. It makes medicine safer. Um, yes, and yes, what you said is true. Mistakes can happen. And there's a difference between a mistake and something that's negligence. Negligence is a breach in the reasonable standard of care, but bad things happen. I review medical malpractice cases where bad things happen all the time. Probably nine out of 10 calls are not cases. They're just unfortunate, bad medical results. That doesn't equal medical negligence. Same thing with products. Things can happen. They may not be a result of negligence. So, you know, and, and by the way, these cases are very costly. So I could say with great certainty that there are very few frivolities in this, in this area of practice. Lawyers aren't bringing cases just for the heck of it because someone's injured. Uh, and if they do, they're most likely going to lose. And they're going to lose their cost and they're going to lose the case because the other side hires good quality lawyers. In the cases that I do, in the medical cases, I'm against, at least in the South Florida area, the same group of lawyers that are so highly educated, so sophisticated, you know, and, and, and do it so often, so frequently. They know the medicine. And if I have a poor case, it's probably not going to be successful. So you you really you decide what cases to take, and that's what makes or breaks what you're doing. In addition to your ability to work up the case, because and this is important for everybody to know, the the expense of the case is entirely on you. The clients pay you nothing, win or lose. The client pays you nothing. You get your fee only if you're successful. So yes, we are, we work. And almost all, uh, this is not, this is ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all of us personal injury lawyers work on a contingent fee basis, but it's not only a contingent fee, it's we advance the cost. So, you know, in a medical malpractice or a product liability case, you can start off knowing it's a six figure cost case. I don't mean fees, I don't mean my staff, I mean experts that I have to hire, um, experiments that we might have to do, you know, uh, depositions that we take medical analysis of records, different types of experts. We have experts on what's called liability and we have experts on damages. What does that mean? The experts might be an engineer in a liability case. In a medical case, it might be a neonatology doctor, how I just described earlier. On the damage side, we may need a life care planner, someone that's gonna describe and the details of what medical necessities are required and how much that costs. So when you combine all that, combine all that, you're in the six figures. So you're darn right. The biggest and most important part of my practice is the initial assessment. And how do I do that? I don't do it myself. You know, certain times we can exclude a case based on different things right away. But oftentimes the first level, at least at my firm, is it goes to my nurse who's been with me for 25 years. Um, and then her and I have discussions before we even go to a doctor or before we even go to an engineer. Um, so we do an initial analysis, but it's very careful and prudent. You know, that's the last thing we want to do is uh, two things. I don't want to lose money and I don't want to set false expectations for clients. That's bad business. Mm -hmm.
really bad business telling somebody, oh, don't worry, I'm going to win. And a year later, giving them a report from two experts saying there's no case. That, that's a waste of time sure. and a waste of resources, and it's bad business, and it gives you a bad reputation. I'd rather tell a client, you know, I'm so sorry, you, you know, you had a terrible result, but I just don't see it as medical negligence. Those clients come back to me. Those people refer people to me because at least I was honest with them and, and candid with them, and most people appreciate that. And the ones that don't, you know, I, I, we can't really control that. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how you – take us through how you built your firm. You're, you have a, a very successful firm, and you don't take a 1,000 cases. You take one or two good cases at a time. Your partners work on a handful of cases at a time. How did you build this? Take us, take us through well, – you know, give, sure. us, give us you know, the, the beginning of it and talk about your philosophy about uh, how you build a firm. Well, I think some of this you know. But, you know, for the people listening, you know, first of all, you know, we started with obviously hard work and no money. <laughs> so, you know, that's how you start things, any business. And if my, my philosophy and just general life in all businesses, if you stick to something, whatever it may be, if you're a car mechanic, if you're a lawyer, if you're a CPA and you work hard and you're honest and you do good work and you continue to educate yourself, generally you'll reach some level of success. But how do you get to higher levels of success? Nowadays, it, unfortunately or fortunately, it takes some level of marketing skills. And that's why people hire you, David, because you're the specialist in that. And you know more than anyone else how to help build the practices of lawyers in particular. Um, but I don't think being a lawyer and growing a law practice is much different than growing uh, any other kind of CPA practice. It, you know, personal contacts, the way in which you treat people is critical. So one thing we did, which was a very robust thing in helping build our practice and our reputation, as, as you know, because you were part of it, is we decided to form the Panther, Panther and San Pedro Referral Network. Now, what is this? It was much more than reaching out to uh, and It's mostly lawyers, um, all lawyers, in fact, except you as our honorary member, as the chief marketing person. But what we did was we said we don't want to just try to get lawyers to send us cases because you know that that is self-serving um, we hope they will but how, how do we go about it so what we did is we said how can we help other lawyers now for instance an immigration lawyer or a divorce lawyer because of our profile and you know we've been in the Panther building for I don't know, since 1989 on the corner of Kendall and US-1 and been very involved in community services and community activities, which is another way to get known. But we did all that and we were known, but we started getting calls like in divorce. And, and you know, could I have done that? I learned about it in law school, yes, but I, we did, made a decision that we would only focus on the main areas and, and put all our focus, our heart and our desire and our intention and our efforts in that area. So what would, instead of getting a call on a divorce client and saying, oh, we don't do that, we said, listen, we can put this together in a network. Let's find a really good divorce lawyer who we can refer cases to when that call comes in. Then it expanded. Let's find an immigration lawyer. Let's find a patent lawyer. Let's find a corporate lawyer. You know, and we can go on and on and on. So how we did it was we sent out a flyer, a simple flyer, 
that was kind of almost pre-internet, uh, about, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And, you know, we got a tremendous response of people who wanted to join the network. Uh, and, and by the way, we didn't make a requirement that you send cases to Panther Panther and San Pedro if you get them. We said we would hope that would be the case and we'll send things to you, but there's no, you're not required. There was no fees involved. And how we organized it pre-COVID, we had lunches, we had breakfast, we had educational meetings where someone like yourself would come in, talk about marketing. We had at least 15 judges from Dade County circuit court come. We had different politicians. Why would they come? Because it added credibility. Uh, all these great speakers thought our network was the most ethical way to work and grow practices. And the judges, and we even had the chief judge, they all came and they loved it. And they would present, you know, the issues of the day. So, you know, we would have a learning experience and have a nice dinner. Um, of course, our firm sponsored everything. We were happy to do it. And it, it well, it paid off well in dividends and the amount of great cases, great friendships, great alliances that we formed. And we were able to service people who were calling us with people who we vetted. In other words, we knew that we had a good immigration lawyer because we met the person. We would talk to them. And then we formed, as things got more sophisticated, we formed a website. From on our website, a, a link where you could go to the Panther Panther San Pedro Referral Network. It was only open for members. It wasn't for strangers, for our members. And we could cross talk and, and then we connected with emails. Um, and it grew from 20 to 30 people to I think we have about 150 members in Dade County and about another 50, maybe 40 or 50 in Broward. Um, and even through COVID, it's strong because the referrals go back and forth. We made sure that there were no junk emails going back and forth. It was all business related. So anyone can do this, but it does take commitment and time and effort like everything else mm -hmm. in your practice and your growth. Um, and it, it's been fun. We've, I've formed great personal friendships. Uh, and, and that's one of the keys you asked about that is, is personal relationships are the best. Even though we advertise and we market, there's no better or stronger tie in getting new business than personal relationships with people in your community or in, in your community, by the way, could expand. It, could, it doesn't have to be Dade County, it can be Broward County, it can be New York, it can, you know, it can be anywhere now, especially with the evolving world with Zoom and the internet and the connectivity uh, only makes this opportunity greater. So that's kind of one of that's one of many things we did, which was the Panther Panther and San Pedro referral network. It can be found on our website at pantherlaw.com. Anyone can see it. They can't enter it unless they become a member. So let's say there's a guy now in Phoenix or a gal in Detroit or uh, a, a woman in San Diego, and they've they've got a plaintiff's firm, and they hear what you're saying, and they like the idea of creating their own network. What are, the, what are the first few steps? Like you, did you just call all your buddies who are lawyers and say, hey, I'm going to form a network. Let's get together for dinner. How did you start it? Well, the way we started it is we sent out a flyer mm -hmm. back in the old day, snail mail, <laughs> a flyer marketing our firm. Still works. Kind of, snail mail still works, yeah. by the way, those of you listening. Go ahead, Brett. <laughs> uh, we, we, we sent out that flyer. It, it, did, it marketed our results. But we also had very well-known people in the community comment about our firm. 
and, and an invitation to call us and join. And one of our requirements was we, we didn't want to have people that we don't know. So we required anyone who joined and meet us for lunch. And we bought lunch. And um, so each person met lunch. Well, what, the way you suggested is totally fine. You know, call 10 of your best friends or 10 people that are in different practice areas and say, let's let's fight, let's let's uh, form a network. And it, it starts from there. And then you get each one of those. You tell each one of those to try to get two people mm -hmm. make the goal realistic. And we still do that now. We have members. I don't market our network anymore. We have members bringing in new members every once in a while because, it, you know, at some stage it might get too big. Others may think there's no no uh, limits. It could keep growing and each philosophy is fine. But we have a very manageable network where we actually know each other. Um, it's not international. It's pri primarily South Florida. But we could easily have someone from New York join our network. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't pursued that. But, you know, I mean, it, you only have so much time to do so much. And I'd rather do things well than you know, the numbers themselves aren't the key, in my opinion. Quality is the key, and that's what our practice has always been focused on, quality rather than quantity. There are some big law firms that go for quantity, and, you know, they don't treat people that great, and they brag about their results. We choose not to do mm -hmm. that, but that's you know, a personal choice. All right. Now, uh, I want to talk to you specifically about attention to detail. Because you have, I think one of the things that makes you as successful as you are in your profession is you, you personally have a phenomenal attention to detail. And no place is this more prominent than in, your, in one of your main hobbies, which is, which is flying. Talk about why you like flying so much and talk about how that attention to detail is important both in the practice of law and in flying. Well, that's a good question. And now you're going right to one of my passions. So you're making this easy for me, David. Um, I, I started flying at age 17 um, at Perry Airport in Hollywood. And I don't know, I took a passion to it and decided to keep it as a, a private but high level thing in my life. Not, In other words, not go to work doing it. Actually, my son is a professional pilot in Alaska now. Um, but I've flown my whole life and I've have over 3000 hours in all different types of airplanes, including helicopters. And I tell people that are interested in flying, don't do it if it's not going to be a major focus in your life. In other words, even though I love it so much, I don't recommend it for everyone. I have lots of friends that enjoy it, but they realize that it may not be good for them because you're, you're, you're taking your life in your hands, other people that you love, their lives in your hands. I've flown my entire family all over America for the last 30 years, um, but it takes incredible detail, focus, and concentration. I try to fly every week. I, I was out at the airport uh, yesterday uh, doing practice approaches by myself um, because I hadn't flown in 10 days. Um, you know, I fly with instructors. I go to flight safety. In Kansas, once a year, I bring flight trainers here. Uh, I take it extremely serious because it is serious. And, and what it does, though, is it takes me away from everything. When I'm in the airplane, I'm not a lawyer. You know, I am a pilot. I am the captain of the vessel. And the safety of everyone in that plane and myself is priority. And it's, a, it's not 90% concentration. It's 100%. It takes commitment passion, training, maintenance. So those elements are very easily transferable to practice of law. 
You can't be sloppy if you want to be good. A lot of lawyers are really sloppy and they make it through life and they do okay and they service their clients, but it depends on what level you want to reach. If you want to reach the highest levels, then it's going to take the same elements that are applicable and required for me to fly that plane safely. And I fly a twin engine aircraft and you lose an engine, you need to be on your game because of what's called asymmetrical thrust. You have seconds to react, seconds to react. And if you don't react right, you're going to crash. And if you react right, you should be able to live through it. Well, same thing in, 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 a, in a tough litigation. You got the most serious opponents against you people that are well-educated and you need to play the game. You need to play it ethically, but with passion and commitment. And so that's kind of a, a uh, you know, and, and like I said, it's a diversion. And I think with diversions in life, people do better. People that are just focused on one thing, just work, just work. You just kind of lose your passion. It, it's really hard, in my opinion, to focus on one thing and be good at it and have nothing else in life of diversions that make you come back to the original craft and be really good at it. So to me, uh, flying is one of those things and um, I like to keep going at it and keep flying and keep training and doing the best that I can on every single flight. Talk about systems and the importance of systems, not only in uh, flying, but also in the practice of law, right? Everything you do in a plane has a checklist and there's redundancy associated with it. How does that translate into the practice of law? That, that's like an amazing question. That's so on point. So in, in an airplane, you're right. You have a checklist and I, I that checklist is burned in my head. But every time I get in a plane, I take the book out and do the checklist and I do it verbally every time, even if it's a 10 minute flight, moving the airplane from one airport to another, I do the checklist. Why do I do it? Because what if I forgot something that was critical? What if I forgot to turn the magneto on or forgot to turn the alternators on? Could they cause me to have a problem? Yes. Maybe you get away with it and maybe you don't. So in the, in the law practice, let's take, let's move that to medical malpractice. There are so many pitfalls in med mal, so many things that you could do wrong because the statute is so rigid and so difficult and often changes too, just like aviation changes. I had to learn about seven years ago to shift from the round dials to, to the uh, G1000, they called the glass cockpit. That took a lot of training in the MedMal. It used to be you could get an expert that was similar to testify against another expert. Now they took out similar, has to be basically the exact same expert. So let's say you have a surgical case and you get a, a, um, a plastic surgeon. Well, he's a surgeon, right? Or she's a surgeon, but he might not be an abdominal surgeon. Well, guess what? Now you got the expert, you list the expert, you do the affidavit, you go through pre-suit and the case gets dismissed. And what if now, what if you're beyond the statute of limitations, meaning the time to bring it? You are out of luck and you better call your malpractice carrier. The way to do it is to follow a list, know that statute inside and out. And, it, and it, we have our checklist is I have a nurse, an associate, myself, my assistant who's been with me 25 years. We're all trained. So if one of us misses something, the other one is bringing it to each other. It's a team approach. In the plane, most often I don't have a co-pilot, so I'm on my own. 
So it's even more critical um, that I follow the checklist. So checklist is a reminder. And MedMal, there is a checklist of things we go through. And if, if you made the mistake that I just talked about and you're within the statute, maybe you have time to go back and get the right expert, but you've just now delayed the case by a year. Mm -hmm. And delay is not a good thing when you're prosecuting a case for someone who's injured and needs compensation. Delay is really bad. Not as bad as losing the case completely by a statute of limitations, but those are examples of why you need to be organized. Organization and the way you run your entire firm, you need to have organizational skills. You know, statute of limitations is, is something we talk about where a time runs out, you know, and then you can't bring the case. So when we sign up a case, I don't care what kind of case it is, we put the statute of limitations in the, at the very beginning. And what does that mean? In MedMal, it's two years. In ordinary negligence, you got four years. MedMal, there's some exceptions to the two years. If you're representing a minor, you have seven years. It's two years from a date you knew or should have known, not to exceed four years. I don't want to get too complicated, but the bottom line is we insert the statute of limitations in our intake sheet as part of a checklist. Mm -hmm. It's really important to run a firm in an organized manner with checks in place, just like flying the airplane. Is is finding the experts, is that the hardest part of this whole thing? Aside from knowing the law, obviously, but is finding the experts the hardest thing? Because you can't use the same expert over and over and over again. So finding the experts has got to be incredibly difficult. Well, you know, after 34 years, it's not that hard. <laughs> when you first start off, it is. And, you know, the cases are so divergent, like the neonatology guy I referred to. I've used him two or three times. I, I you know, I wouldn't want to say use him 10 times. There's a there's a, a weight and balance on that. You know, and you're as you practice, your connections grow. So, you know, I know so many people, by the way, other lawyers that do the same thing as me. We, we the good ones talk to each other, the ones that are underconfident or, you know, or not wanting to help others. And that's fine. But I have, you know, a bunch of lawyers that do the same thing as me that they call me all the time. Can you give me an expert in this? I'm happy to share my expert. Some guys are not. Depends on your mentality. Um, so no, it, it's not as difficult unless you get to a novel issue, something novel that I maybe haven't had, then yeah, then it becomes a little bit more work. But, um, you know, we have there's so many resources we have now to look for experts. What we try to avoid, and I don't want to dish any other business entity, but expert services, mm. you know, I try, to, I try to avoid those overall. I mean, sometimes you might need them, but, you know, they, they, they have a connotation to them. But I will tell you, as time changes, it seems like that connotation is somewhat less. But if I can avoid that and get a pre- personal reference, that's the better course. It's all about who you know and the connectivities you have. Like you'd be surprised in the referral network. I might talk to some divorce lawyer whose uncle is an OBGYN doctor and testifies. So it's about who you know and, you know, those relationships that make that easier than you may think. Okay, good, good, good. That's why that's why you go to an experienced lawyer, right? Um, Final question for you about the practice of law. Tell me about the importance in um, training and developing younger talent. Uh, the, the three of you, the, the name partners at Panther Panther and San Pedro, you, you guys have been together for a very long time, but I know you have talent in your firm that you're, that you're bringing along. That's, it's not easy to develop younger lawyers. Talk about why it's important for other people who are listening to develop the younger lawyers in their firm. 
I think it's really important. So, you know, by the way, Josh Wintel is a partner now. Oh, congratulations, Josh. Cool. That's wonderful. About a year, year or so ago, but this is a good example and a good segue. Josh was a law clerk from the University of Miami who started with us. And I'm sorry, I don't know the years. I'm 10, 12, 14, 15 years ago. You know, I'm not really good with time, David. Um, but in any event, Josh started with us as a law clerk. And, you know, he started doing just basic pleadings and this and that. And smart young man. And not everyone, by the way, becomes partner. Um, you know, it just depends on the person and the firm and the makeup and what your plans are. Um, and you have equity partner, non-equity partner. There's a million variations. But we made Josh a partner recently because he earned it. Um, but he worked with us. He went to trials with us, uh, with me and David, you know, it, uh, who was David was part of my trial team. Like you said, we haven't seen a trial in a year, but it's going to come back. Mm -hmm. It's going to come back. And already I read in today's Daily Business Review, one of our South Florida friends went to trial in Utah in a tobacco case. So they actually under certain guidelines. So it's coming back. But, you know, to understand everything that happens before trial, you kind of have to have been to a trial. Because if you don't understand the significance of stuff like interrogatories and discovery and depositions and how they play out in trial, you can't do as good of a job doing those tasks. And they're really important. But we can teach that to some extent. The experience, experience is the best. But we have, you know, Josh, we, Josh started here, like I said, as a law clerk. And, you know, he, he understands he's been to enough trials with me and David and seen what happened, seen what can happen, seen the, the importance of some of the things that occur before trial. And that training is important. And, and another reason why it's important as a practical matter is maybe I don't want to do everything, but, you know, I, I need to trust someone that can do it, that can go to a court hearing, that can do a deposition for me that I know that if I'm in trial in a year from now, I'm going to look back at that transcript and I'm going to know it was done right. So that's it's self-serving. It makes your life that much easier if you're the senior partner to have some people around you. But you got to take the time to train them. I've been fortunate. You know, I only started with one partner who was a senior uh, trial lawyer for about five, six, seven years. And we started the, our firm. Um, but that was enough time. If you're a fast learner and you want to learn and you have the passion um, for me anyway. Um, and then, of course, you continue to learn. You're always learning in this in this in this profession, whether it's learning medicine, learning the changes in the law, learning the changes in the Supreme Court rulings, learning the changes in the rules of civil procedure. We've had some changes in summary judgment standards recently adopted in the federal standards. So everything's always changing. So that's the challenge that can be good or bad. If you're lazy, it's really bad. And if you're not lazy and you have passion, it's really good. Um, so bringing those people along is both helpful, fun, and adds to the profession. So how can people get a hold of you if they maybe they have a case in Florida and they want to bounce it off of you to see if it's a, if it's the right case for you? Or if they're an attorney in another practice area, they want to join the network. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you, Brett? We're pretty easy to track. You can um, find me at our website at panterlaw.com, P-A-N-T-E-R-L-A-W-L-A-W.com. I mean, we're there. All our emails are listed. Um, nowadays, that's, I don't know, we don't even bother giving out phone numbers. It's so easy. Our website, you know, everything about us is on our website. 
um, approved by you, of course, right? You've looked at it and we've gotten your, your a good stamp of approval um, as a marketeer and marketeer extraordinaire. And, you know, Dave, I, I want to thank you for allowing me the privilege of being with you. Um, and I hope that we can see each other soon in person at one of the dinners we discussed. Well, it'll be it'll be sooner rather than later. We, uh, you know, I know um, I know you're on top of everything that goes on in the medical profession. I'm sure uh, there'll be a vaccine available soon. We're we're recording this in the middle of February 2021. Those of you who are listening, so uh, sooner rather than later, Brett. It's been it's been too long. Those of you who are listening, you're you've, you've heard today just a brief interview with one of the best in the business here in Florida. Please. Uh, If you need something within the practice of law, reach out to Brett, join his network if you're an attorney. If you have a case where you or someone you know or care about has been injured and you think it's due to the negligence of others or it's a catastrophic injury and you don't know why it occurred, Brett's the guy to call. All the information on Brett and his firm is in the show notes. Brett, it's been uh, it's been an honor being your friend for the last 15 years, meeting uh, Mitch, David, and the people in your firm. Thank you for joining us today and, and spending a few minutes with us. This is the Inside BS Show, folks. We're here every day with a brand new interview, and we take you inside the business strategy of some of the best businesses around. Join us right back here again tomorrow for another edition of our show. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life. Thank you, David. <laughs>